morning, everyone. You guys look more awake than first service. I'm just going to say it. You guys are like we are. We slept longer than them. Good job. It's, it looks good. It looks good on you. I was laughing this uh, last week, the week before, weeks are blending together, at youth camp because someone was talking about, uh, you know, it was like 95% of successful people wake up between 6 and 7 a.m. And I thought, I can be successful in that 3%. Amen? I can figure it out. I'll work harder. I'll be that 3% that can be successful. Um, I'm just teasing. But you know, we're in this series. It's, uh, we're going through the prison epistles. All I could think was the Pauline epistles. The prison epistles. These are written by the Apostle Paul. They're in the New Testament. And these books in the Bible take place while Paul was in prison. So he's completely incarcerated. And he's not in prison because he's broken the law. He's not in prison for stealing or, you know, uh, mugging someone or something like that. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. So he's in prison doing God's work. And so these are the letters that he wrote to different churches. And that's what we've been going through over the past little bit of time. But how many of you guys have ever dreamt, daydreamed about leaving everything, leaving this life you have here behind and starting over in a new place? Anybody? You know, I, I shouldn't have made you raise, raise your hand. Sorry. I was laughing because someone in first service, I just started to say, how many of you have ever, and the person was already nodding so big with a huge smile on their face. And I was like, oh, I got to break eye contact because it's too funny. But some of you guys, you raised your hand so fast and your spouse is like elbowing you and being like too fast. You're too happy about it. I better be going in your new life that you're planning here, right? I better be part of it. This morning, um, we were driving to the church, and, and I, I saw, just happened to come up on social media, this Italian property, Italy, in the, in the hills. It was uh, 750,000 euros, beautiful estate, beautiful manicured, had a pool, looked so nice, you know, and I was like, I could do so well there, leaving my family behind, you know. No, I'm just kidding. We would all go. It would be just great. We all went. No, I'm, yeah, I'm just teasing. Well, we dream about these things. Oh, you know, this, you know if, I didn't, if I wasn't here, if I could start over, everything would be better. And, you know, in my life, I kind of had the opportunity to start over. I was born in California, and so I lived, like, around the first 10 years of my life there. And then I moved to southern Oregon. And the greatest thing about moving, like, seven hours away is that no one could come up to me once I lived in Medford and be like, Oh, hi, remember me? I used to change your diapers. Like, why do we say this to kids? You know, so it was great. I just, you know, completely got away from that, that area. So no one could say that about me. No one could say you used to bite me in the nursery or something like that, right? No one could say those, those um, embarrassing things about me. And then where, where I went to school, they had the dividing lines. There was two middle schools and two high schools. And for the most part, the same middle schoolers went to the same high school, except there was like tiny little pockets in Medford where you go to one middle school and you go to the opposing high school. So that was me. I was in that tiny little pocket. There's not very many kids and they go to one middle school and then they go to the other high school. Well, that was another great time where I could leave any embarrassment from middle school. I mean, who's ever been embarrassed in middle school, right? But I could leave any embarrassment from middle school behind and start over fresh in high school where no one knows, you know, that I fell down the stairs or peed my pants. I'll let you figure out which one of those is true. And um, I could just start over. But here's what I noticed about starting over with a new life. I was still me. And that was the biggest problem, right? Any, any way that I was embarrassing or I was awkward or I was, I was still me. I was taking me to the new life and still messing up the new life. 
And that's kind of how we all are. Like, if I move to these Italian hills, unfortunately, all of the problems we're going to bring with us, right? So this imagination of our new life. But that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks is this idea that Paul has been saying that when you give your life to Christ, when you decide to live for him, you now have a new life. That it's, it's your old life you need to leave behind, and now we are living a new life. And as we've been going through this over the few weeks, Paul keeps saying this, right? Pastor Jake did such a great job last week talking about this new life. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I sit there and I think, great but what am I supposed to do in my new life, right? Because it's still me. So even though you say it's a new life, I think I'm going to mess it up. How many of you guys feel that way? So today what we're going to be looking at is what Paul says, this is what your new life should look like. If you are new in Christ, this is how you should be living. Listen, the passages we're going through are not written to people who don't have faith in Jesus. They're written to the Christians. So Paul isn't saying, this is what non-Christians should do. No, he's saying, this is what Christians, if you have faith in Jesus, this is how you should live. He's not saying, you need to live this way in order to have salvation. No. He's saying, this is how we live now that we have received salvation and we're living this new life, okay? All right, so let's go to Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. I'm going to go ahead and read through the scriptures first. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion." that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How many of you guys are like, I shouldn't have come to church today? (laughs) I read through that. You basically read my um, profile description, right? (laughs) And now I need to leave. No, I'm just teasing. This is what Paul is saying our new life should look like. And he says right here in verse 25, put away all falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And this is an important um, little part of this whole passage that we are talking about today. He's saying we are members of one another. The church, not just Joy Church right here, sitting in here right now, but the church, all Christians, we are all members of the same body, that we are all supposed to be working together. We are not working against each other. We're not working, you know, um, to undermine each other. We're supposed to be working together with each other. In fact, Paul even says in a different book, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, you want to, thank you, man, you're so good. Uh, it says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And in this whole passage, Paul, he talks about and compares the body, the church, with a human body. Just how the human body is connected The church is supposed to be connected. We aren't detached and and everyone is independent and everyone lives their whole life. No, Paul is saying you guys are members of one body. Uh, Quite a few months ago, February or March, I injured my knee and it took months 
for my knee to get back to being okay. It was hurt. It was messed up, and little tiny things would, would uh, kind of re-injure it or re-hurt it or whatever. And so I had to kind of like baby this knee that wasn't working very well. And what's odd, when you are like kind of, you know, helping one part of your body that's broken, right, or not working very well, other parts of your body start to feel the strain. So pretty soon you're like, why does my back hurt? Why does my hips hurt? Why does this leg hurt now, right? Because other parts of your body are picking up the slack for that part of the body that isn't working very well. But you know what's interesting? There was no point during this injury that my, my ankle was like, cut off the knee. Get rid of it. It's taking too long to heal. Should have been healed by now, right? There was no point that my ear was like, I hate that knee anyways. I never liked it. It's always been bad. Why do we even need knees, right? It's, it's like absolutely absurd. And that's why this, this symbolism that Paul gives us is so profound because he's saying that's what the church should be like. That when one person in the body is having a hard time or is weak or has been injured, the rest of the body makes up the difference. That at no point does the body say, we don't like toes. We're all getting rid of toes. We've all decided. We don't want toes, right? It's always interesting to me medically why, you know, they say you can just remove that. Yeah, you don't need tonsils. And I'm like, it's there though. I was born with them. I think I might need them. And they're like, nah, we don't know what they do. And I'm like, I would like to know before you remove them, right? It's the same way in the church. There's no, there, we are one body. We all need each other. And maybe you're in this room and you think, no, I'm like, the weird, I can't even think, I'm the tonsil. I don't know what my use is. And Paul's saying, no, every part of the body is important. Every part of the body is needed. Every part of the body is necessary for the body to work the way that it's supposed to work. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 25, that we put away all falsehood. Each one of us, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of the same body. Meaning, don't lie about each other. When you lie about your fellow uh, church people, when you speak falsehood about each other, you're literally like cutting your own body. You're literally hurting your own self. So we don't do that. And then moving on in verse 26 and 27, he says, be angry and do not sin. This this is the most encouraging part of the message, that Paul says you get to be angry. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, yes, I got this one, right? I think this is so interesting because as Christians, we like to pretend we've never been angry in our life, right? Oh, me, I've never been angry. Nothing bothers me. Your neighbor just keeps hitting your fence and breaking it, and you just smile and put it back up, right? No, anger is an actual emotion that happens, that we feel, I told this story in first service and I didn't have permission, so I kept it anonymous very poorly, so, but I got permission for second service that I could tell this story. But the, a couple weekends ago, we were with uh, pastors Thomas and Melissa who are planting Joy Church Salem, and we had gone to this uh, restaurant, and they have, you know, three little kids, and we have three more middle little kids, and we were downtown, and it's busy, you know, busy roads, and that's always when kids decide they're good to run across the road, you know, and you're like, what are you thinking? But we're trying to get into our car, and... Um, Penny, our youngest, she's eight. She's getting in and she's on the side of the road. It's a busy road and Jake's on that side too. He's getting in to the, to the car and all of a sudden this car is just flying by. They can see them trying to get in. They're going so fast. They don't slow down. They don't try to go into the other lane, anything. So Jake yells out, 
<sighs> you know, he's like yelling at the car. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Thinking like, oh, this is a good, a good environment for Thomas and Melissa. But they already know us. They're already well aware, right? But what's going on in that moment? Jake could have been like, bless you. Bless you, truck, as you mow down my child. Right? I'm not even offended in any way because I'm too blessed to be stressed. No, it's a reality. It's a real thing. I'm mad at you. You're not paying attention. You're not noticing the small child. And I'm ticked off at you right now, right? And so Paul says you can be angry. Anger is a real emotion. We're not just supposed to bury it and pretend under some sort of Christianness that we've never been angry in our life. But he gives us guidelines for our anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. It's okay to feel anger. It's what the next decision right after that that we make, right? Jake didn't run after that car and start beating their SUV or something, right? That, that would be the next decision that's like, nah, maybe you shouldn't have done that, okay? No, but he, he felt the anger, but he did not sin. It says, and then I love that it gives you a timeline. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So not even a whole day. It's all right to feel anger, but process it and move on. I'm not still angry at that car that went by too fast. Now I just think it's funny. I don't think I was that angry then. <laughs> but, <laughs> but does that make sense? Anger has a timeline. And that's what Paul is saying here. And then it's so interesting. The reason it has a timeline is verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. When we don't process our anger or when we just decide to keep our anger and to sit in anger and let anger stew, we're giving opportunity to the devil. I don't know about you, but I make enough problems on my own. I don't need the devil to come and give me more problems. I'm going to stir up my own problems. I don't need any help. So I don't want to give any opportunity to the devil. I want to process. It's okay to feel anger, but I need to be angry, not sin, not let the sun go down on that anger. Get rid of it, right? Move on and not give the devil any opportunity in my life. Let's move on to the next verse. It says, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Historians and scholars, they actually think that uh, this passage, Paul is talking about literal thieves. In this, the book, the Ephesians, is written to the church in Ephesus. And around Ephesus are these hills, and there was historically these thieves that lived in the hills. And they would pounce on people and steal from them who were traveling from city to city. And so a lot of people believe that some of these thieves got saved, became Christians, and now are attending church. So Paul is writing to them and saying, don't steal anymore, okay? That was your career. You did a good job. Let's change careers. Let's do something else now. So he's saying, let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, if you in this room are literally a thief, you can take this verse literally, okay? It's time to move on with that career choice. Let's do something else. Let's not steal. But there's another way that we can look at this verse. The um, purpose of a thief is to take from someone else in order that I might get ahead. And we can do this in our normal life. If we live in this idea that the only way that I can get ahead is everybody else has what I don't have, 
And I have to take opportunities from others. I have to take promotions from others. I have to, you know, dog eat dog world, make my way up the totem pole of success. Then we realize this is kind of the same thing. I am stealing from others because I believe I don't have. And then what Paul says is a complete reversal, which is so beautiful. He says, let him labor, doing honest work with your own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says, we should, instead of taking from others, you take from yourself. When I work hard, when I have hard labor, I'm really taking from myself. I'm taking from my energy. I'm taking from my own time. I'm working hard. I'm taking from me. And he says, in order to give to others. What a beautiful thing. Paul completely changes it. Instead of taking from others to help yourself, work hard so you have something to give to others who are in need. It completely flips it on its head. Work hard so that you have enough to give to someone else. Verse 29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that he may give, give grace to those who hear. This word corrupting is the same word that means uh, putrefied fruit. Rotten fruit. You know, we're getting into the last days of summer where you begin to have fruit flies, okay? How many of you guys have ever had fruit flies in your house? Fruit flies is one of those things where you start trying to figure out all the homeopathic ways. You know, in the very beginning to get rid of them, you're like, this is my apple cider trap. It's got a funnel. They come in, they die. And then by the end of the summer, they still haven't left. And you're like, we're burning this house down. Because the flies won't win. We will win, right? Even if I don't live here anymore, I'm moving to my Italian villa and I'm, the fruit flies can have this house. But this is this idea that, that this fruit, right? It's the summertime and so everyone's harvesting this delicious, amazing fruit. There's blackberries everywhere. There's blueberries everywhere. There's apples. There's pears. There's all of this amazing produce happening. And that's kind of the, this idea that our mouths are supposed to be like this nice, crisp, wonderful fruit. But when we let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, it's like we're that putrid, disgusting fruit that's full of fruit flies, that's full of maggots, right? I won't say anything else grosser, all right? But that's what Paul is really comparing this to, is that that's not what your mouth was made for. We weren't made to speak horrible things about each other. We weren't made to talk badly about each other. We weren't made to corrupt each other. We were made to lift each other up. He says, only such as is good for building up. That's what should come out of our mouth. Only what is good for building each other up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. When you speak, do people leave feeling more grace in their life? Or when you speak, do people leave feeling worse? This is what Paul is saying, your new life, every conversation should leave others feeling like, oh, I just took a big bite of a really nice ripe apple, and it tastes so good, it was so refreshing. That's how our mouth should be. In verse 30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, what this is talking about is do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If you read through the entire Bible or if you begin to understand more the story of the whole Bible, it's really this story of God, the creator of the universe, wanting to have a relationship with his people. 
In the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, it says that God walked in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve. He had this really nice relationship, open relationship with Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve sin, right? And it makes a chasm where there's no longer that beautiful relationship anymore. And why is that? Is that just because God is a stickler for rules? No, it's because of the holiness of God. He is so holy that he can't dwell amongst sin. And so the rest of the Bible, for the rest of the scriptures, until we get to Jesus, we see God trying to make ways to again be able to dwell with his people. In fact, in, in the, in, when the Israelites are going through the desert and so they're nomadic and they're living in these tents, God goes through these extensive ways in order to have a tent that, that his presence would dwell in in the middle of their camping. That's incredible that God would want to be with us. That God would want to go camping with the Israelites. For them, it wasn't camping. It was real life. It just looked like camping, right? We do that for vacation. They're like, we get to heaven. They're like, that's not fair. That was my everyday existence. You did that for fun? Sorry, right? But that's, God had all of these rules. If you read through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he has all of these regulations. Why? Because he wants to be with us. And then with Jesus, that's the whole reason God sends Jesus. He sends his son. And it says that Jesus never sins. Where we are tainted by sin, we're tainted by the problems of this earth. It says that he's tempted in every way that we were tempted. And yet Jesus never sinned. He lived this perfect life. So then when he is on the cross, what's happening there is God pouring all the wrath and punishment for all of the sin, for all of history, and for all of future And Jesus took that on himself. Why? So that we could have a relationship with God. So that we can be restored back into relationship through the life of Jesus. That's an incredible thing. And in fact, what the Bible says is that now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where before they had a place, they had a temple that they would go to. Now it says that you, if you are following Christ, if you've you've given your life to Christ, you are the temple. That's incredible. That means that that's not the sanctuary of Joy Church. This is awesome. But when you leave, you're still supposed to be carrying the Holy Spirit out of here. That when you wake up on Monday morning, you're still the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Paul is saying here is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What are you putting inside of you? What are you putting inside of your heart, inside of your body? Make it a place that the Holy Spirit loves to be at. All of those rules and regulations in in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's making a clean place for God to be able to dwell. And in the same way, as Christians, we want to make a clean place for the Holy Spirit to be able to dwell. We don't want to do things or watch things or say things or listen to things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And you say, how will I know? It's when you're watching something and you think, I shouldn't be watching this. It's usually that's the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, you shouldn't be watching this, right? When you're listening to a conversation and you realize, I don't like this. I shouldn't be in this conversation. We shouldn't be talking about this other person this way. That's the Holy Spirit knocking on you saying, uh, get it out of here. You're the temple. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve him. Spurgeon says, he is grieved with us mainly for our own sakes. For he knows what misery sin will cost us. He reads our sorrows in our sins. He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. That's powerful. 
All right, let's go on to the next verse. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's all, guys. Okay? Easy peasy, right? I'm going to quickly go right through what each of these words mean. To me, it sounds like um, the Christmas story, you know, came such a clamor. But that's, it's, it's less nice, okay? But let's go through these. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What is bitterness? Bitterness is a smoldering resentment. A smoldering resentment inside of you. It's a sour person, a believer who resents fellow Christians. A believer who's resenting everyone around them. Bitterness may involve animosity. This is a poison that acts on the mind or the attitude. Note that we are not to put away some bitterness, but all bitterness. Put away any irritable state of mind, any harboring of resentment towards others. We're not to keep any score of wrong against us. As I go through each of these words, if you are like, oh, that's me. Listen, don't be stuck there just saying, God, help me. Help me, Lord. That's me. Help me. If, I, if you're saying, that's me, I'm bitter, just say, God, help me. Help me in my bitterness. Wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is outbursts of anger, a rage against others. Wrath comes from the word to burn. This is a person who breaks out with anger over slight offenses. This is strong antagonism towards others. A person of wrath is a hot-tempered person. His pent-up wrath explodes at others. It's interesting as we read these, because so many of these things, we see people say, that's my personality. That's who I am. I'm a hothead. Oh, no, you're full of wrath. It's not part of your personality. It's not your temperament. It's actually a sin. Maybe you've made it part of your personality, but God is saying, this isn't who we are made to be. We're a new person. Anger. Now, wait a second, Bethany. How is anger listed? Because you just said, Paul said we could be angry, right? But this, remember we said you can be angry, but don't sin. This is a settled anger in your soul. A settled anger in your soul. A lasting resentment towards someone that manifests itself in chronic behavior. It's easy to be angry right now. If you watch the news, listen to the news, if you look around and the world isn't looking like how you want and no one's paying attention to whatever political thing that you're wanting them to pay attention to, it's easy to be angry. But that's not what we as new people are supposed to be. We're not supposed to have settled anger in our soul. Clamor. What is clamor? It means hollering, raising your voice against another. Clamor is shouting. It's loud contention among individuals. This is public outbursts or of strife with others. This is screaming, right? When you lose it and you're screaming at somebody, that's what clamor is. People in this situation assert their rights at each other. We see this so much today on the Beltline. You cut me off. I was trying to get to that exit. Don't you understand the zipper merge, right? And people are asserting their rights at each other, and they're clamoring at each other. But that's not who we are supposed to be as new people. Slander. Slander means evil speaking, defamation of others. It's to cast, it is to cast of aspersions on someone else. The Greek word is the word for blasphemy. The child of God is not to slander or gossip about others. We're supposed to check the facts. 
We don't just assume everyone's out to get us. One of our kids right now gets offended at the drop of a hat. And so we're talking to them and saying, don't, don't assume you know why they did whatever they did. You know, they scrunched their nose at me. Okay, well, maybe their nose tickled. Maybe it actually wasn't an affront to who you are as a human. But we do this as grown-ups. We're offended. And we start to slander people. They gave me three donuts and they did it on purpose. I wanted five and they knew it. We don't need to know why people did the things they did. We don't need to slander. We don't need to figure it out. And then malice. Malice is the desire to hurt others. It's ill will towards other people. So he sums it up in verse 32. Instead of those things, right, he says, put all of those things away from you. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This word be that he uses here actually means becoming. So if you look at this and you say, I'm more like verse 31 than 32, right? It's okay because the point is, is that we're in our new life with Christ. And maybe I'm not being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, forgiving but I am becoming kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. You know, and that's, that's the beautiful thing about God, of his grace, that he's saying, come along with me in this new life. Maybe today you were clamoring in your house, but let's become kind. Let's become tenderhearted. Let's become forgiving. Let's go on this journey of becoming those things. What does it mean to be kind? It's just being kind to other people. That's my first response. Instead of offense, instead of anger, my first response is kindness towards someone else. Tender-hearted. It's so easy to become hard-hearted. It's so easy to begin to just assume everyone's out to get you. It's, be, it's easy to begin to assume it's not going to work out. But God says be tender-hearted. Let your heart be tender towards him. Let your heart be tender towards each other. And then forgiveness, that we have to forgive one another. And the bar, the standard is high. It's as Christ forgave you. Basically, if you sum up everything that Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying, if we treat others as Christ has treated us, you'll be able to do this verse, all these verses. If you will treat others how Christ has treated you, that's a high standard. But remember, we're becoming. We're, I'm on my way to treating others how Christ has treated me. So how has Christ forgiven me? This, this isn't mine, but I thought these were so good. I'm going to share them with you. Here are the ways that Christ has forgiven you. And as I read through these, remember, we're not only amazed at how Christ has forgiven us. This is, this is us saying, wow, this is how I'm also supposed to forgive other people. It says, God holds back his anger a long time until he forgives. He bears with us for a long time, though we sorely provoke him. God reaches out to bad people to woo them to himself and attempts reconciliation with bad people. God always makes the first move in forgiveness, trying to reconcile even though the guilty party is uninterested in forgiveness. That's a hard one. We always want to wait for the guilty to come and say they're sorry. But God doesn't. He forgives before. God forgives our sin knowing that we will sin again often in the exact same way. This is so interesting because this is different from how we act. You know, we have shame. If you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? You won't fool me three times. I'll get better. I'll get stronger. I'll, I'll barrier off my life towards you. 
That's not what Jesus does. It says he forgives us knowing we're going to do it again. He forgives you over and over and over. God's forgiveness is so complete and glorious that he grants adoption to the former offenders. He doesn't keep you far away. He draws you close. God in his forgiveness bore all of the penalty for the wrong he did, we did against him. He was innocent, but he bore all the guilt. God keeps reaching out to man for reconciliation even when man rejects him again and again. God requires no probationary period to receive his forgiveness. He doesn't stick us in time out and make us work it out. God's forgiveness offers complete restoration and honor. He loves, adopts, honors, and associates with those who once wronged him. God puts his trust in us and invites us to work with him as co-laborers when he forgives us. There's a great book in our last couple minutes. It's called The Freedom Factor, and it's about forgiveness. And forgiveness is such an important part of Christianity because the Bible says, Jesus says, if you won't forgive others, I won't forgive you. And that sounds so harsh. It sounds like God is keeping track and keeping a tally. But the point of this is that we have been forgiven of so much. That when we really truly see our sin for what it is, when we really truly see how lost we were without Jesus, he says, I forgave you for all of that. And so it's a big deal that we wouldn't forgive someone else. And in this book, The Freedom Factor, he tells you to actually make kind of a mental picture in your head where you, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, it's like you mentally think about going inside of your heart, going into a dungeon, so walk down those steps, and you can imagine the dungeon, you know, however you want to imagine it. And inside of the dungeon, there's jail cells, and inside those cells are the people that you have not forgiven, those people in your life that you are still holding on to. And for some of you guys in this room, it's yourself. You see yourself in that jail cell, that you've never forgiven yourself for what you've done. And he says you need to go up to the cell, and you need to unlock the door, and then you need to grab that offender by the hand and lead them up those steps outside of the house into the light of day, give them a hug and say, I forgive you and I release you. And this seems absolutely terrible for some of the ways that some of you guys have been offended and hurt by other people, been victimized. And you think, why would I ever hold their hand? Why would I ever hug them? I could never do that. But it's such a powerful image for all of us to do if we have unforgiveness because the point is, is that you are really setting yourself free. That you have somebody locked in a dungeon in your own heart. That God's saying, let it go. You are killing yourself with this unforgiveness. They're not the prisoner. You're the prisoner until you release them. And maybe in your life, you would never actually hug that person or hold their hand or talk to them again, right? But in your heart, you have to let it go. In your heart, you have to release it. In your heart, you have to set them free. That's what Christ is asking of all of us, that we would say, God, do I have any unforgiveness inside of me? Is there anyone in my life that I'm still holding on to? If everyone would just bow their head and close their eyes, God, I just thank you so much that you have forgiven us. That list is so beautiful to me of all the ways that you forgive us again and again and again. And you don't only forgive us, but you adopt us in, that you bring us close, God. 
You're such a good God. God, I pray for every person in this room who is struggling with unforgiveness. Lord, I pray today there will be a boldness to forgive. There will be a boldness to let go. There will be a boldness to move on, God. I thank you, Lord, that that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but that you are with us and you will guide us and you will help us become more like you, Lord, that we would be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. If you're in this room, everyone can keep their heads bowed and their eyes closed. And you say, I don't know, Jesus. You were talking about all of that that God has done for relationship with me, but I don't know him. I'm not in relationship with him. It's, it's basically us coming to the end of ourselves and saying, I realize that I am a sinner. I have done wrong, and I need a Savior. I cannot save myself. I need Jesus. I need what he did on that cross for me. I need forgiveness for my own wrong, and I want to be in relationship with God, the Creator. If you're in this room and you don't know him, would you just lift up your hand today? If you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, I want to change my life, anybody else in this room, just lift up your hand. No one's looking around. We're not embarrassing you. It's for you to have a first step of faith in Jesus. Anybody else? Thank you. Right now we're going to pray a prayer, and it's not perfect words or a perfect prayer. It's just a way for you to verbalize that you are now starting a new journey, that you're putting your faith in Jesus. So if everyone in the room is going to repeat after me, so no one's going to be alone. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for living for me. Thank you for creating me. God, I've done wrong. I've hurt people. I've hurt myself. Will you forgive me? Will you make me clean? Will you give me that new life? God, I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. I give you my life. Help me be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.